You're listening to Living Faith, the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Avon Park, Florida. First Baptist Church is located at 100 North Lake Avenue in Avon Park, Florida. We meet Sunday morning at 9.30 a.m. for Sunday school and 10.45 a.m. for morning worship. Sunday evening services are at 6 p.m. On Wednesday, we meet at 6 p.m. for our weekly Bible study along with our immersive student and children's ministries. Find out more at www.fbcap.net or give us a call at 863-453-6681. You can email us at info at fbcap.net. We'd love to connect with you soon. This is part of our current Sunday morning sermon series, Look and Live, Life and Light in the Gospel of John. Take your copy of God's Word this morning and find the Gospel of John. John, the seventh chapter, we're going to be taking a look at a, a fairly large section of Scripture here. Uh, what I want to be able to do is to read the Word a uh, section at a time and give some running commentary. And then I want to, after we work through the Scripture, I want to give some, some uh, what now, what we learn from this text and how do we uh, apply this text uh, into our life. You remember... In John's Gospel, in chapter 7, a few weeks ago, we started this uh, section off from uh, verses 14 through 24. Jesus is at the, the Feast of the Booths, the Feast of the Tabernacles. It was one of the three great feasts that the Jews celebrated, the nation of Israel. Uh, the, the Feast of the Booths and the Tabernacle was a time to uh, celebrate. It was the most festive for the Jews, the most celebratory. And it was a, a time to reflect on God's faithfulness, how God had provided for the nation of Israel. They wandered in the desert, uh, and they literally lived in tabernacles and, and little lean-tos and tents in the wilderness as they wandered. And so it's uh, amazing to me, and it comes to light as we read the gospel, that the, the old law was there. The law was there to point the nation of Israel to who God was and His holiness, and their need of redemption, and also the, the pointing in the future of a, a coming Messiah. But what had happened was the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and, and, and I'm using the word religion in a negative term, what had happened was religion had taken the law and turned it not into a good thing that pointed to who God was, but turned it into a man-centered religion of things to do and, and not do. And instead of the law pointing to the holiness and the mercy and the goodness and the grace of God through uh, the sacrifices, it pointed toward man and religion. And so isn't it great if you think about it, Jesus showing up in something that God had given them as a good thing that religion and man had corrupted, and he shows up in the midst of it with great teaching and great explanation of, of who he is. And we know that Christ had come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill that law. And so we kind of jump in right here in verse 25, after Christ has been at the Feast of the Booths already, and had already spoken in the temple. And we begin right here in verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this man whom they seek to kill? And we realize from the previous in John chapter 5, really in John chapter 5 verse 18, it was the first reference that they wanted to literally kill Christ. He had healed on the Sabbath and an explanation of how he could do something on the Sabbath is that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He basically in that discourse was saying, okay, I am God. 
I am sent from my Father, my Father and I am one. I am the, um, the true bread. I am Christ. And so from John chapter 5, verse 18, the religious leaders wanted to kill Christ, and that had been circulated. They didn't have internet and social media then, but still things could circulate. They still had parking lots. As long as there's parking lots, things can circulate. And so the, the, Jeru, the Jews came to Jerusalem for this feast, and, and, and word had been circulating about Christ and his miracles. Some believed. Some thought this was a great thing. The religious leaders were opposed to it. And so they knew that that man that is speaking was the one that some said was evil and they needed to kill. And so they make reference to that. Is this not the man who they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? And so they were speaking amongst themselves. But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and it is he that sent me. Now, we look at these first few verses, a key word we could just say, confusion. And throughout the gospel, and especially in this section here leading up to chapter 12, the confusion is, who is he? What does he come to do? What does that mean to us? Even here, where is he from? And I would submit to you this morning that even the world today is confused over who Jesus Christ is. Who is he? As we see in the text, we begin to understand that they wanted to kill him because he claimed to be Christ and he came to claim to be the Son of God and God himself. And they just simply asked this question, can he be the Christ? Maybe he is the Christ. That is why the, the authorities did not seek to kill him. And again, Scripture teaches in Micah that the, the Christ would come from where? Bethlehem. Where was Christ born? Isn't that amazing how that works? The Old Testament prophesied that he would come from Bethlehem. He was born in Bethlehem. But yet the, the Pharisees and religion, I'm using religion in a negative term here. The, word, the, the religious of the world had, had taken even what Micah had said, and they said this, when the Messiah comes... No one's going to know anything about it. No one's going to know where he's from. But when the, when the, the uh, and this all makes sense of why they were so opposed to Jesus. But when the Messiah comes, he is just going to appear. And when he appears, everybody's going to know what he is. And everybody's going to know what he's going to do. And he is going to show up. And he is going to deliver the nation of Israel from this bondage from the Roman rule. And it is going to leave no doubt that he is the Messiah. But here we have a man born from Bethlehem in a stable from Galilee, the son of a carpenter. And he'd lived many years and they knew much about him. 
And he's not some powerful ruler that just shows up in a storm of, of, of prestige and, and pride and even immediately begins to do the work of God by delivering the religious nation of Israel from the bondage of Rome. And he was not this political leader or this military leader. But yet he was Christ. And there was much confusion. Notice that Christ says, you think you know me and where I'm from. You see a little sarcasm there. Christ said, you, you know me. And he said, but where I am from, I was sent by he that is true. And so they were waiting on a Messiah to come deliver them. And they know that this Messiah was going to be coming from God the Father. And yet Jesus Christ is standing right there before them. And they could not recognize him for who he was. I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true. I know him for I come from him. And it is he that sent me. You got to give it to Jesus. He's consistent with his message, isn't he? From the very beginning, I am sent from the Father. And, and we'll get to this in a moment. Give you a little sneak peek of this. If you know my Father, you'll know I'm sent from my Father. I know you don't know the Father, Jesus is saying, because you don't know me. If you know me, you're going to know the Father. If you're seeking the will of the Father, think about it in this standpoint. In the Old Testament, we looked at, what day? I, I still don't know what day it is. Well, at least know it's Sunday today. We all have hurricane fatigue. I got here Wednesday. I had no idea what day it was. And I started smelling food in the kitchen. I said, it's either Wednesday or somebody's just cooking me lunch in the kitchen. It must be Wednesday. But the entirety of Christ's message, he has been saying this. I am sent from the Father. And we looked at this Wednesday with Abraham. Abraham was saved by grace through faith. But yet Christ hadn't come yet. But his faith was that in God was going to provide a redeemer and his faith was in the coming of Christ that would come and he did come. Our faith is on the Messiah that did come. Our faith is in the past on what Christ has accomplished. Abraham's faith was in the future that was accomplished. But Abraham was saved by grace through faith. He believed the word of the Father. He believed that the old covenant pointed toward the graciousness and the holiness of God. He trusted in what that provided and he acted on faith. And so because of that, he is with Christ now. If the Old Testament, if these folks would have just had faith in who God was, they would have been able to see Christ for who he was. It's just like our world today. Confusion over Jesus Christ. Not who we want him to be. That's what we do. We make Christ in our own image. We have this nice little neat make Barbie doll the way you want Barbie doll and accessorize Jesus the way you want to accessorize. No, he is sent from the Father and he is God in the flesh and he's given us his wonderful word to show us that. We don't want our Christ as our Redeemer. We want his Christ as our Redeemer. Total confusion. This next section, verse 30, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because the hour had not yet come. And my little personality, I always say stuff like amazing. <laughs> amazing. They're not going to do anything until the Father allows it. 
because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him, and they said that when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So basically, in the, in the midst of this, you have a group of people that, that are full of, of wanting him to have him arrested. You have a group of people that believe in him, and they even said, if anyone were to come after him, nobody could do more than what he's already done. What more do we need to see to believe that he is the one that says he has come? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees, Pharisees, they sent officers to arrest him. Jesus said, I will be with you a little while longer and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? For where I am, you cannot come. In the midst of this belief, key word number two, and we're going to put it in words, confusion, hatred. Just a, a hatred and a disdain for who Christ is. Was. In the, in the, so you take the religious leaders, they hear the people murmuring and believing in what Christ is, and they're, they're, they're seeing the signs, and they're hearing what he's saying, and they're believing in who he is, and you see this just religious hatred toward Christ because people are believing, and we see the plot begin to thicken and thicken and thicken, leading to his ultimate arrest. But yet we see the hour has not come. As we think about Christ's journey to the cross, nothing will impede Calvary. Nothing is going to get in the way of him dying on a cross for our sin. Nothing will stop the Father from doing what the Son was sent to do. Now think about that. They could have killed Christ then, but the Father wouldn't allow it. They could have arrested him then, but the Father would not allow it. There is no gospel without the cross. There is no salvation without Christ going to the cross and shedding his blood for our sin. He goes on to say, you think you know me, but I'm preparing to leave you. You think you know who I am, but you cannot go where I go. And the Jews said to one another, see, that's what religious leaders were doing. They were thinking about everything in a way that they could understand it. What would we like to say? In the flesh. Imagine them standing around. What does he mean he's not going where he's going? Was he going to the Jew, Gentiles? Where can he go that we can't go? Now think about this. They said, you're going to where the Gentiles are. Is that where you're going that we can't go? He went to the cross so the gospel could go to the Gentiles. Oh, so you're going in the Gentiles and you're going to do your, your, your work among the Gentiles. Are you going to go to like Ephesus and hang out with the Greeks? Not exactly. But one day there's going to be an apostle of mine named John that's going to be in Ephesus and write this book. Isn't that pretty cool? That was written where where the religious leaders said that Jesus was going, the gospel was for them, and the gospel of John was written amongst them. 
And guess what? They didn't go. What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. 36 is dealing with, I think, a physical thing, but it's also a spiritual thing. They could never see, dead religion can never see Jesus Christ for who he is. There's not enough arguments to convey to convince the mind about Jesus Christ. It is only by an enlightened heart, by the Spirit of God, that we can see the Son for who He is. Nothing's changed. So we have confusion, we have hatred. And only in a way that Christ can, we see an invitation. Verse 37, on the last day of the feast... On that great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, If anyone thirsts for him, come to me and drink. Interesting thing about the feast, the last day of the feast, there would have been an a, a entourage, a, a big ceremony at the temple, and all the, the number of priests would have had these containers of some sort of water and they would have drawn this water and they would have paraded into the feast and it would have been a a wonderful grand religious ceremony of of God's provision and they took this water and they would have poured it over the altar and it would have been a, a sign of God's outpouring and blessing on the nation of Israel and God it would have been the conclusion to the festival God's faithfulness to his people and God pouring his blessing out over the people that's the setting and in the midst of that notice the wording there look at verse 37 on that day when all of this is going on when all of that is taking place then Jesus he stood up now don't want to read too much into things sometimes but a normal rabbi would have taught sitting down would have taught with the disciples around him but it said that Jesus stood up and he cried out and we'd have said it in a way that everyone in the, in the earshot, everyone would have heard it. And he was, he was vocal and he wanted everybody to hear it. You know, you're, you're looking at water. You're looking at a ceremony of what water can do and the blessings of God. And notice what he said. He stood up and he cried out, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. What an invitation. If anyone thirsts, if anyone has a a recognition of something that they are lacking and they are desiring, that, that desire for thirst, to have that quenched by water, it's a salvific understanding. If anyone thirsts, if anyone realizes that they are spiritually dead and there's nothing within them that is going to allow them to have that life, when they realize that there is something that they need and everything that they have tried, they've been able to find that fulfillment when we thirst Jesus says come and approach the source come to that which can fulfill that need come to that which will give you forgiveness of sin and it says to drink John 1 12 but in many has received him he gave the right to become children of God now can you imagine 
my mind works kind of, we all have weird little minds, I guess. Some are weirder than others. Can you imagine everybody lined up in this spiritual little thing and everybody's watching the priests go by and the religion and the formality and the basins of water and they go into the temple and they've turned what God had given them into something that man desired and had turned a grace into a sense of works and law and, and the ceremonies winding down and everybody's facing that way and all of a sudden Jesus stand up and said, now if you really want it, you come to me. And I can just visualize people just turning around. What is he talking about? And I can't help but believe that those that have already said they believe in me, look at verse 38, whoever believes in me out of the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit with whom those who believed in him were to receive. It's a futuristic time that will come. For as yet the spirit has not been given because Christ was not yet glorified. In the midst of hatred, Christ stood up and issued an invitation to come to him. So we have confusion, we have hatred, we have an invitation. Now look at verses 40 through 52. When they heard these words, some of the people said, is this really the prophet? Others said, this is Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? You, know, you can see the confusion. Who is this man? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, Why do you not, why do you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The officers would have been like a, a little police force for the temple. Pharisees and Sadducees, the little officers, would have been the little police of the temple. And those were the ones that were always doing all the arresting and everything when Christ is arrested. And so you can imagine the frustration of the Pharisees. The officers come back and said, hey, no one's ever spoken like this before. We can't arrest him. The Pharisees answered him, verse 47, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. What a statement. The Christ is standing in their midst and the religious leaders are saying they don't believe in the law which we have made into our image and so they are accursed. What an what a ironic statement that is. Nicodemus who had gone to him before, who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And you can see Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He was the one that came to him by night. You can just see God stirring in his heart. He knows that there's something about this man. There's just something there. And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. We have confusion. We have hatred. We have an invitation. We have division. The lessons of, of what Christ said, I think, in the temple can be applied this way. So what now? That, that's what the text says. What now? How do we apply these things in our life today? 
It's good to know what the scripture says, but what now? Number one, Jesus is so much more than just a person to believe in. See, they were arguing about historically, who is Jesus? Who is he? Where is he from? Where does he live? Who sent him? Who is his father? Who is his mother? What is he going to do? How is he behaving? Jesus is so much more than a person to just believe in. One of the dangers that we have in our culture, you could go up and talk to anybody. You're a Christian. Well, I believe in Jesus. Like the person. It's like a, a, an historical figure. It's like, pick a historical figure. I believe in them. I know what they did. I know what they've accomplished. I believe in that person. I believe their life represents truth. I, I think in our culture today, we have made the gospel into some sort of, of just believe something. And we've turned Jesus just to, into a person to believe in. He's not just a person to believe in. He's God. And when we believe in Christ and what he has accomplished, he, and please come back tonight as we start our new emphasis on Sunday night discipleship. We've always met on Sunday nights at 6, but in this few months leading up to the holidays, when Christmas, we're going to be doing it more intentional discipleship. So we're going to come in and we're going to sit toward the front. We're not going to be too tight with one another, but we're going to come into the front. I'm going to be kind of teaching from the floor, and it's going to be kind of teaching that way. And we're going to look at union with Christ. Conforming to the image of Christ is our goal. Every day we're conforming more to the image of Jesus Christ. And we're going to start this lesson on what does it mean to be in Christ, in Christ in us. It sounds silly if you're in the Marine Corps, you get this. I have a, the picture of Chesty Puller's tombstone. Anybody in the Marine Corps? Kenny up there? Anybody, any Marines in the building? Am I the only Marine in the building? Come on now. Y'all don't know who Chesty Puller is, do you? Chesty Puller was a Grand Marine, a Grand Marine was he. Ha! Ah. I've got Chesty Puller's tombstone. And I, you go up, I got Chesty Puller's tombstone. You know, ah, Chesty Puller. He's just a man. Great man. I admire him. He's a man. He can, he can change my life in a sense that he motivates me. And this is what Marines do. And this is, this is what we do. We're Chesty Puller Marine. We're men's men. And uh, ah, I want to name my child Chesty Puller. Jared said, no way. <laughs> what a great point to segue into an announcement. I found out Monday I'm going to be a grandfather. <laughs> Chesty Puller Beck. Vince Dooley just doesn't sound good. Herschel Walker doesn't go good. Tim Tebow will never happen. But they're great men that can motivate us and that cause us to do great things. And we've turned Jesus Christ, I'm afraid, into a great man. And I, I believe in this great man and he, I'm encouraged by this great man. But listen, Jesus Christ is not a great man. He is God in the flesh. And when we call upon this great man in faith and truth, as God opens our eyes to who he is, it is a life changer. Chesty Puller will never change my life other than motivate me to do things externally. Jesus Christ changes us internally. He's not just a man. He is God in the flesh. 
and we adore and we worship. He, and he, he changes our life. It's just not something we do with our life. I was a Marine. A part of my life. But we become a believer and we see Christ for who he is. He is our life. Jesus is sent from the Father. And if we seek to know the Father, we will both know the Son and the Father and the Spirit. Jesus Christ is more than just a man. He is God in the flesh. Think about that from an evangelism standpoint. You could say something like this, and we've all said it. You need to believe in Jesus Christ. Okay. That's true, but what does that mean? You need to believe in Jesus Christ. Because he will take away the sin. He will will forgive you of your sin. And when you call upon him in repentance and faith, you are a new creation and all things are passed away. And your life will radically change forever because Jesus Christ is just not an option we have this side of heaven. He is the only option for all eternity. That's a big difference. So what do we learn from this? Jesus Christ is more than just a man. He is God. Secondly, what do we learn from the text in this temple setting? Nothing can stop Jesus Christ. Nothing can stop the gospel. Nothing can stop the church. Think about the opposition. So so Christ is, remember the beginning of John 7, they were saying, hey, let's go up to the temple at the feast and and you can, what a great platform to market who you are. And remember what he said, no, I'm not coming. And then once his brothers went up, then he followed. He didn't want to be marketed as a great leader. He wanted to come and proclaim he is a God in the flesh. So Jesus was not sitting there saying, I better not go. I mean, if I go up there, I may not be able to do that. No. Nothing can silence Christ. Nothing can silence the church. Nothing can silence the gospel. When we think about our... our, Now, hear me out. Everybody pay attention. Wake up now. Sometimes... We focus too much on the enemy instead of the mission. Oh, this devil out there. Oh, my goodness. The devil caused the hurricane. He doesn't want us to have church. And he ripped the roof off the building. Oh, what are we going to do? That's giving the devil too much credit. Oh, the world is so bad. Let's just all build gospel bunkers and hide in it. Just take a bunch of CDs from First Baptist Church worship service and we'll just listen to the same sermons over and over and over. We'll get in our little bunker and we'll hide out in the world. It's so bad. Come quickly, Jesus. Just come, but find me in my bunker when you get here. Oh. You can't stop the church. You know, it's like football. Here's my one football story for the day. I could say a lot more, but I'm not. 
You watch a football game. Let's take Georgia, for instance. <laughs> You'll understand it. So Mississippi State's coming to town. Even Aaron Murray said, this is going to be an upset. Mississippi State's good. Georgia better be ready. So the game, I mean, what time the game starts? 7? 6.45. Here's me around my house. <laughs> Honey, you going to watch the game? I'm watching it. We are. Oh, gosh. Seven nothing. Woo, now we're talking. Fourteen nothing. Yeah. But I had no clue until the end of that game who was going to win. Now you go up to me. Jordan looks pretty good. Yeah, boy, Jordan looks good. Everybody, Alabama, better look out. If Florida can't barely beat Kentucky, y'all wait. It's going to be a bar. We're going to steamroll, y'all. I just, you know, you know what I mean. Okay, think about it this way. Jesus has already won. He's already defeated Satan. And we are so worried about what the enemy, it'd be like, in the, being in the military and you got your little goggles, you know, binoculars, go, well, we got snipers all in the trees and there, there's wire and there's, there's tanks everywhere and we're just going to say, no, we just kind of cross over the berm and we're just marching on to Zion with the gospel. We're Chesty Fuller now. Ah! And we act like we are scared to death in our society today. We spend so much time worried about what the enemy's doing that we can't do what we need to be doing. And I think that's what the enemy wants us to do. We have not lost. Look at Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. If you don't believe me, believe Jesus. Somebody asked me one time, where do you get that stuff from? The Bible. Peter professes who Christ is, Matthew 16, 18 and following. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed are you, just Simon, you knew this. And look at verse 18, Matthew 16, 18. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. I believe what's referencing to is his calling to proclaim the gospel. He is an apostle and a messenger of Christ. On the rock of your gospel proclaiming apostleship, what you do as believers as you take out the gospel message of what I have done and what you have seen and what you have received, it says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Amen? The gate in a fortress was the most vulnerable point. You ever watch? I, I was telling Matt, we just have random conversation. I love barbarian Viking movies. I have no idea. Sharon hates them. Just nothing like a good barbarian. Nothing like just sacking a village to inspire the day. <laughs> but what's the first thing they go for? That gate. And they get the, you know, they, they always, I don't know whoever's on the bash down the gate platoon and gets hot tar dumped on them but they're up there and they're pounding on the gate and if they can get in that gate they got it Jesus said listen the gates of hell are going to not defeat the church there's no, there's no vulnerable point to the attack that Satan has on the church he said Peter you go and do your work 
and I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom, and I will build my church on this rock, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And Peter believed that, and he lived that out, and even when he was being crucified upside down as a martyr for Jesus Christ, he still believed it. In his death, was the church defeated, yes or no? No, it just made it grow stronger. But in our culture, I'm afraid we think that the win and loss is in the balance. Nothing will stop Jesus Christ from accomplishing his mission. Nothing will silence the gospel. Nothing will silence the church. Our problem is we're focused more on the enemy rather than the mission. There always has been and there always will be hostility toward the gospel. Expect it. Look for it. Embrace it. I remember the first time someone told me they didn't like my preaching and they left the church and went to another church. That was devastating to you. You think about it. The guy next door preaches a lot better than you. We're going to his church. And I think Sharon, being a wise pastor's wife, honey, they didn't like Jesus preaching anyway. That's a heart issue. I said, that's exactly right. It's their heart, not mine. Expect hostility. I think each and every passing day in America, we're going to expect more hostility as a church, as everything. Just expect it. They didn't be, defeat Christ. They're not going to defeat his church. We're not ours. We're his. And it's definitely not going to convene the gospel message. Number three. These are a little quicker. There's five of them. Here's three. Nothing takes place until the Father allows it. Now just think on that for a minute. you got two options. You have a big God or a little God. Okay. If you have a big God, it doesn't matter what happens to you and how devastating it is. He's still a big God. He's still a big God. He's all-knowing. He's ever-present. He's all-loving. He's fair. He's just. He's right. And I have a lot of, a lot of, a lot of you, a lot of friends. I, I, I was telling someone this morning, I took my little left out of Walmart going the back way, and I looked up and I saw all that citrus on the ground. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. You know, I'm, I'm worried about my privacy fence being blown away. It's all the damage I had. What if I own these groves? What if that was my livelihood? Well, if I have a little God, I don't, I don't know what to tell you to do. If you have a God that is, is, that is just a little God and is kind of walking through life with you and randomly going from place to place, going, I don't know, maybe, maybe federal aid will come through. I'm not sure. I don't know. Maybe, we'll see what FEMA says. Woo, I don't know. No, I serve a big God. I, I serve a big loving Lord that says, you know what, I know that citrus is on the ground and you know you're worried about your income and you're worried about production in this state because eventually that way, you know, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. God says, but I'm a bigger deal. We could have come up here and not had a building, and God's still God. And so people want to, we, we worry about, you know, he's a big God. 
Jesus, don't go up there. Jesus, you need to leave. Paul, you need to leave. They're going to kill you. They're going to murder you. They're, gonna... They're not going to do one thing until God allows it. Because he is God. Nothing takes place until the Father allows it. The hour had not yet come. Nothing can thwart the timetable of God. Yes, our decisions and what we do, they, 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 they affect us. There are things that we do that affect things. But nothing affects and impacts what God has planned. Just that time had not come for his arrest. Because he is in control of everything. And as we push back with the gospel, we know that God is in control of redemptive history. That's, that's encouraging to me. Number four. If anyone thirsts for the Son, they can come and experience forgiveness of sin and the blessings of the Spirit. I've been using this analogy. It's one of the things that just popped in my mind the other night. We're all the tube of toothpaste. You know that? Think about toothpaste. The minute I said that, somebody said, how do, how do I squeeze toothpaste? I'll show you. We're all the tube of toothpaste. All right? What happens when you squeeze a tube of toothpaste? Something comes out. I don't roll mine in the bottom. I don't just wipe blah, but I just kind of grab the bottom and squeeze it. Everybody, how do you squeeze? We're tube of toothpaste. The second something squeezes us, us comes out. Is it sweet? Is it bitter? Is it Christ-like? Is it worldly? You know, I'm fine when I'm in church and everybody, I'm, I'm behaving, I'm at church, everything's fine, I'm being all pastoral with joy we're talking about the service everything's good I see you at Walmart I straighten up you know I'm looking at your buggy but I straighten up <laughs> but what about when I come home after day four of no air conditioning or ice cream What comes out then? See, the world is what the world is. People do what people do because that's just what's, that's who they are. That's what's in the toothpaste. You can't change that. But when you come to Christ and your sins are forgiven, you feel the blessing and you receive the blessing of the Holy Spirit that will flow out like living waters. They come and experience this and the presence and the power of the Spirit will begin to flow through our life. I don't know where you are today, but I'll tell you what you need to do today. You need to come to Jesus Christ, have your sins forgiven, and receive the gift and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what this world needs. That's the answer to all of the things that we face is Jesus Christ. And then the last little statement connects to this one. There'll always be division over the gospel, over Jesus, who he was, what he came to do, how it affects our life. The question is, what do you think about Jesus? Let's stand as we pray.
Lord God, we thank you for your word in the temple many years ago and that you have preserved that word for us here today. And just as real as you issue an invitation in that temple that day, you've issued an invitation today to come to you. We thank you, Lord God, that you are God for the Father, for the Son, and for the Spirit, three in one. You are Lord, and you are Lord of all. And as we close our time in worship and singing today, let us respond in faith. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.